you very much for that um, very kind introduction, uh, Professor um, Decake. And uh, thank you, of course, uh, to all of you for, for being here. I don't think I've ever given a lecture this late. <laughs> and not after a meal. So if I start fading, um, please understand. And if you start fading, I'll understand as well. And I won't take it personally. But I honestly would like to thank um, everyone here at George Mason University. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Professor De Cake, uh, Professor Haddad, and Ilmaz, um, the staff, of course, uh, of the Ali Voral Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies. Um, I'd like to, to uh, and of course, I'm deeply honored to, to give this keynote. And I guess I'd like to begin with um, the opening line of the book, or what I hope will be the opening line of my, the book that I will finish one day. Um, which is to say, which is the following. Uh, there is no history of sectarianism that is also not a history of pluralism. And I say this because the rise and the fall of religious diversity in the modern Middle East, and specifically I'm thinking of the modern Arab world, has shaped what is most profound, it seems to me, about this world and what is most tragic about it as well. Yet the notion of sectarianism, uh, as we just heard in this truly actually wonderful uh, introduction to the conference ideals that you laid out, the notion of sectarianism remains until today one of the most overused and under-theorized concepts in the history of the modern Middle East. And when the exiled Syrian poet Adunis lamented in 1998 in a book of essays entitled A Preface to the Ends of a Century, when he lamented and he said, we are, quote, today less religious and tolerant and more sectarian and fanatical, less united and more divided, less open and accepting of the other and more closed off and obscurantist. His cautionary words evoked a disillusionment that is rampant, was rampant and is in fact increasingly rampant <laughs> and evident among many Arab intellectuals, indeed among many intellectuals who think about and write about the contemporary Arab world in what would become a familiar refrain in contemporary Arab commentary, Adonis wrote that the problem of the Arab world was almost entirely one of self. The Arabs had failed to secularize. They had failed, he said, to enter modernity. They had failed to free themselves from tradition. And the appearance, of course, of the nightmarish Islamic State in Iraq and Syria has amplified tremendously this sense and the sentiment of despair. So the conventional way of thinking about sectarianism follows precisely along the lines of Adonis's um, Jeremiah. This view depicts sectarianism as an age-old burden, one that gets passed essentially unchanged from generation to generation. Sectarianism in this sense is reified. It is made into an objective reality and an impediment, and it is seen as an impediment to the unfolding of what is routinely a, a, an idealized secular modernity. In 1959, therefore, the mid-20th century Arab intellectual, and a truly sort of a pioneering Arab intellectual by the name of Constantine Zureyk, described sectarian fanaticism, or what he said, as something that, quote, intrudes into the present from the past. It was for Zureyk, like for Adonis decades later, Sectarianism was an anachronism in an age of nationalisms. 
It was, in other words, the kryptonite which the colonizer uses to derail the march of self-determination, an inner demon, if a different metaphor, that has long haunted the Arab world. Now, as many of you know, we have journalists here. In journalistic and academic usage, sectarianism is typically evoked as an adjective akin to racism, so that we talk about sectarian outlooks, we talk about sectarian actions, sectarian thoughts, in a similar manner to the way one talks about racist outlooks, racist thoughts, racist actions. The term sectarianism thus often denotes a pervasive form of prejudice, or an identification with a religious or ethnic community as if this community were a political party. Sectarianism can also mean the mobilization through which political, economic, and social claims are made in multi-religious and multi-ethnic and multilinguistic societies. The political scientist Aaron Lippard famously in the 1960s described or coined the term, or he didn't coin the term, but he used the term, popularized the term consociational democracy to refer to the ability of elites in particular countries that had a multi-ethnic or multi-religious component to create seemingly stable political bargains across sectarian or confessional or ethnic lines, such as the National Pact of Lebanon in 1943, French uh, and English communal representation in 19th century Canada, or in the Netherlands. But the term sectarianism can just as easily be used, and it in fact is most often used today, to denote outright communal mobilizations and warfare and violence. Whether we're talking about, from a historian's perspective, the Damascus Massacre of 1860, the Farhud in Baghdad in 1941, the Gujarat Massacre's genocide in 2001, and of course, the terrible aftermath of the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, which our colleague Neil Rosen has written about um, uh, extensively. Invariably, therefore, the description of sectarianism suggests a one-dimensional social reality that allegedly corresponds neatly to the, to the religious and ethnic diversity of different parts of the non-Western world, and especially the Middle East. Just add geopolitics, and it's as if Middle Eastern pluralism is a bomb that must inevitably explode. I don't doubt that understanding, studying, tracing geopolitics is, of course, crucial to understanding the unraveling that has taken place in Iraq and that is taking place in Syria today. But to my mind, sectarianism has never been only a practice of discrimination or outright violence or a contest over resources. It has also always been a judgment, a discourse, a deliberate invocation of the term by others and specifically by modern empires and nation states and their ideologues and camp followers to suggest the violent, irrational, and tribal antithesis of their civilization or nationalism, an antithesis that, that needs to be suppressed, managed, or contained. Its usage, its usage is similar to the way terrorism is used by modern states, not as an objective signifier of violence, but as an, but as an ideological signifier of a particular form of violence invariably stripped of any meaningful context, directed at these states or their citizens. What I mean is that sectarianism is not simply a reflection of, quote, real fractures in religiously diverse worlds, but it is also a language. It is a discourse that has been deployed by both Middle Eastern and Western nations, communities, and individuals 
to create and justify political and ideological frameworks within which supposedly innate sectarian problems are contained, if not necessarily overcome. It is this point that I think we as scholars must be far more attentive to, namely the manner in which the sectarian is invoked and in the process invented in order to make particular claims to national unity and national resources, or indeed to deny the validity of these claims. Sectarianism, in other words, has always been as much a discourse about age-old social and religious realities than a description of their actual manifestations. Consider the fact that around the world today, very few groups, in fact, no group that I'm aware of, openly identifies itself as sectarian. Indeed, because what we refer to as sectarian violence occurs primarily in places out there, in places such as Lebanon, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria. There's a tendency in the West, and in the United States in particular, to dismiss sectarianism or to think of sectarianism primarily as a legacy of primordial sentiments, of deep and enduring hostilities that lurk in the allegedly unenlightened, barbaric, and uncivilized places of the world. President Barack Obama, in his recent April 2016 interview in The Atlantic magazine, repeated precisely this line of thinking. Expressing his disappointment with the Middle East, Obama declared, quote, you've got countries that have very few civic traditions, so that as autocratic regimes start fraying, the only organizing principles are sectarian, end quote. When scholars such as Joshua Landis pretend in turn that the problem of the contemporary Arab world is an Alawite and Sunnite were placed in the same country by arbitrary European imperialism of the First World War, they seem to repeat an Orientalist commonplace, that diversity is an insuperable problem in the Middle East, but not in America, where blacks were enslaved in their millions, or in Europe, where of course Jews were dispatched in the horrors of the Holocaust. The Middle East, in short, and Muslims more broadly, are thus routinely viewed as more negatively religious than people in the secular or allegedly secular West. In its coverage of the bombing in Pakistan in February 2013, for example, Reuters informed its readers that, quote, the schism, this is a way of talking about a bombing in 2013, quote, the schism between Sunnis and Shiites developed after the Prophet Muhammad died in 632 when his followers could not agree on a successor, end quote. That clerics cloaked in ostentatious piety often figure prominently in political discourse in the Middle East reinforces this association between religion, sectarianism, and the medieval. Sectarianism is, in other words, viewed in the West and in the Arab world itself as the Middle East's version of tribalism. But instead of tribes, the Middle East has religious or ethnic communities. Instead of chiefs, it has clerics, or would-be clerics. Instead of a tribal problem, there is a so-called sectarian one. The rival theys, and here you can fill in with whatever community or group that you wish, Sunni, Shia'i, Muslim, Christian, Jews, Kurds, Alawi, and so on, they've been like this forever. That at least is what we are told. Think indeed of how easily we allow ourselves to use words today, especially in the US, Arab and Jew, as oppositional without thinking about when Precisely this opposition began. Think also, more recently, in our own era, how we, how not, not necessarily people here, but how in the media, Saddam Hussein has been reconfigured into a Sunni dictator. Although, of course, 
Um, he belonged to an Iraqi nationalist party that began decades before um, and was founded in Syria by both a Christian and a Sunni Muslim Arab nationalist who identified themselves specifically as nationalist, not as a Christian or as a Muslim. Think most of all about how Western journalism and scholarship in English about the Middle East routinely identifies people by their religious affiliation, no matter if they themselves identify themselves by that affiliation. So it doesn't matter what you say about yourself, you're always a Muslim or a Christian, a Sunni or a Shiite. And it's routine, whereas of course, we never do that in English writing when we refer to President Obama. You do not always refer to President Obama as, quote, the black or the African-American President Obama. You do not always refer to Hillary Clinton as the white Clinton. And that use of language, of course, has a massive and major framing effect. Now, many papers, as we heard in this conference, I suspect, will explore a range of episodes of sectarianism in medieval and modern contexts. And looking at the program, it seems to be that we're covering, or, or that different presenters will cover, um, aspects of um, the medieval Islamic world to post-colonial West Africa and Indonesia, to post-Ottoman Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia. My hope, of course, is that these papers will historicize, that is to say contextualize, which is what I understood the, the point of this conference to be, to contextualize various sectarian episodes. My hope is that the aggregate effect will be to deconstruct this extraordinarily persistent myth of a perpetually sectarian East. Perhaps even more importantly, it will once and for all dispose of the idea that there is an analytic category called sectarianism, something with a capital S that floats above history and that has analytic power. To be clear, I do not, of course, deny the salience of sectarian affiliations or the reality of mobilizations that have taken place in the Middle East. And insofar as we can discern a communal or caste problem in India and a racial problem in the US and in Europe, then of course we can also obviously also discern a sectarian problem in the Middle East. I disagree strongly, however, with narratives that suggest that sectarianism is either inevitable or to be interpreted as a Middle Eastern inevitability. So when the historian Bruce Masters, who was my mentor, and I respect him enormously, says that as long, quote, as religion lay at the heart of each individual's worldview, the potential for society to fracture along sectarian lines remained, end quote. Perhaps, perhaps this is the case, but this is also a truism. Between the potentiality of sectarian violence and its actuality lies the work of historians, lies real history. That is to say, the workings out of myriad foreign and local factors, discourses, genealogies, that can and do transform one plausible, for instance, hegemonic national reading of the world into an equally plausible and hegemonic sectarian one. That is what history is all about. But it's not my task, or yours, I suppose, to explain or account for every instance of so-called sectarianism in the modern Middle East, let alone the pre-modern uh, Islamic world. I do not pretend, of course, to do so here. Nor do I explore the myriad economic, social, urban kinship ties that make sectarian politics visible, viable, and meaningful in every instance. But I do think it is imperative to ask, is there really an unbroken relationship between the modern problems of sectarianism and the medieval ones 
that we are told over and over again is where the contemporary problem of the Saudi-Iranian clash today began as one between Sunni and Shia. I think not. I have no doubt, of course, that an argument can be made that there were in the medieval past sectarian tensions, discourses, and problems um, that need to be studied and explored by my early modern and medievalist colleagues. Yet as much as I look forward to learning about some of these histories here at this conference, what ultimately is the relationship between a medieval Shi'i and a modern one in Bahrain that can justify putting them together in the same conference? And I don't mean this as a criticism, of course, of the organizers. I understand exactly what the intentions of the conference as you laid them out, and I am in complete agreement with that. But, the, but in a sense, I ask, why is it that an academic conference on race relations in Great Britain today does not begin with the Norman invasion of William the Conqueror? And to put this question in sort of slightly less polemical terms, why is it that a conference on the problem of contemporary American racism, manifested by, for instance, Donald Trump, does not begin with uh, uh, an investigation into Cotton Mather, the Puritans' sort of view of Indians? Now, maybe there's a reason. Maybe we should do both. But the point is, we don't. Um, is the history of race relations any less complex or dynamic or violent or troubling than that of sectarian relations in the Middle East? I ask these questions, again, not to criticize or embarrass in any way, shape, or form the conference organizers, but to provoke some serious thought, uh, at least for me, uh, and hopefully among some of you, about how sectarianism is so often studied as a problem that spans the ages in one non-Western part of the world, whereas racism in America and in Europe is not studied in a similar fashion. The history of religious and racial violence in this country far surpasses that of any Middle Eastern country, and yet the term sectarianism has almost no political salience in the United States. Ask a US historian about sectarianism here, and they'll usually give you a blank stare. What do you mean? It doesn't make sense. They don't comprehend. And I suspect that part of the answer, of course, is one of vocabulary. But the other part is a difficulty that confronts all of us who work on the Middle East and on the Islamic world. That is to say, the enduring conceit that the Middle East is more religious in a negative way than the West. The Middle East has allegedly not secularized. That is to say, it has not followed a Eurocentric path to modernity. And thus, in some respects, it is still somehow medieval which is why I think someone like Bernard Lewis, a medievalist by training, has authority to speak so often about the contemporary Middle East. Now, whatever the medieval and pre-modern forms of sectarianism that existed, um, I do want to make the case here, and in a much more elaborate way, I make the case in my forthcoming book, um, that the 19th century in particular Ought to, um, ought to be or should be a key or is or was a key point of departure for any meaningful discussion of what we would call the problem of sectarianism in the modern Middle East. And I say this for three principal reasons. One, because I know something about it. No. First, because the breakdown in the 19th century of a long-standing and profoundly unequal Ottoman imperial system that had ruled for centuries over a vast multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic landscape opened the ideological and political space for new political imaginaries, new, new horizons, and new vocabularies. 
some of which were inclusive and some of which were extraordinarily exclusive. The famous Ottoman Tanzimat reforms of the mid-19th century, between 1839, more or less, and 1876, disestablished a system of long-standing symbolic and legal Islamic Ottoman supremacy at a time of enormous European military, political, and economic pressure on the empire. Now, this is a story that most of you, I assume here, are familiar with. The question, of course, was what form of modern political organization was going to replace that of a discredited Ottoman Muslim dynastic absolutism. The 19th century witnessed the emergence in the Middle East of new ideas of a secular state, new ideologies of secular citizenship, as well as new ideologies of nationalism. So from legitimating a manifestly discriminatory Ottoman Muslim imperial politics, religion became a key to enshrining a new and increasingly codified non-discriminatory politics. This was one of the most obvious features of the Ottoman 19th century, the Reformation, the Tanzimat, the jizya tax, for instance, that ISIS reestablished in some parts of Iraq and Syria. Uh, the jizya tax was, of course, abolished by the Ottoman state in 1855. The Ottoman constitution of 1876, furthermore, formally promulgated an equal Ottoman citizenship irrespective of religious affiliation. Now, in reality, of course, this transition from overt discrimination, from being a Muslim empire, to non-discrimination was an immensely complex and an immensely controversial process. In some quarters, there was resistance to the idea of equality between Muslim and non-Muslim. And it should come as no surprise that the major and unprecedented anti-Christian riots occurred precisely in this moment of transition. So in Aleppo in 1850, in Damascus in 1860. Rather than deny these, what we would describe today as sectarian episodes, in the manner of, let's say, uh, modernist Arab nationalist historiography, which refuses to engage or deal or delve into these episodes, and rather than sensationalize them in the manner of an orientalist historiography that has is, that is, um, studied these, these events um, uh, quite extensively, uh, we should study and contextualize, contextualize these events. So in my first book, The Culture of Sectarianism, I pointed out, or at least I tried to point out, how at the same time as the riots unfolded in Aleppo and Damascus, 1850 and 1860, um, the quasi-feudal old regime uh, of Ottoman Lebanon, which was a non-discriminatory, a non-sectarian, sorry, regime fell apart under the pressures of Ottoman modernization and European interventions that singled out the liberation of Christians as a key sign of civilization, emancipation, and non-discrimination. These interventions by both Europeans and Ottomans created new sectarian Christian and Druze geographies in Mount Lebanon that had not previously existed. They also encouraged a sectarian vocabulary of rights that helped precipitate a war between and among, and that's the crucial bit, between and among Maronite Christians and Druzes that culminated in massacres of Maronites in several locales in the summer of 1860. The violence that unfolded in the summer of 1860, in other words, had nothing to do with tradition and still less to do with religion in any formal or theological sense. Instead, the violence had everything to do with a simultaneous European, Ottoman, and of course, local overturning of a traditionalist, elitist order of things 
that saw fighting across and within communal boundaries. European powers seized upon the massacres of 1860 in Mount Lebanon and, of course, a much larger massacre in Damascus in July of 1860 as proof of the impossibility of secular Ottoman citizenship or of the impossibility of an independent Ottoman reformation. So in regions with significant Christian populations, such as Mount Lebanon, these European powers, and I'm thinking here primarily of Britain, France, and Russia, as well as Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, pressed for the adoption of a modern sectarian quota system to guarantee non-discrimination. That is to say, a division of administrative posts along the basis of ostensibly equitable communal lines. And Mount Lebanon was made the setting for the first and most famous of these sectarian quota systems in 1861. This was the so-called Mutasarrifiyya that was established in 1861 by both uh, the Ottomans, of course under Ottoman sovereignty, but with major European um, guidance. And then the point of this sectarian quota system was not that it was going to reflect the old, but that it was going to reflect a new form of supposedly equitable governance. It was seen as a solution, however, to an age-old sectarian problem that was in reality of extraordinarily recent provenance. If this sounds familiar, it is because a very similar pattern would repeat itself in Iraq nearly a century and a half later. The most important point, I suppose, is that the creation in Mount Lebanon of the first formal Tanzimat-era sectarian system of politics in 1861 was not a natural or organic response to violence in 1860. It was rather an imperial interpretation of that violence that owed far more to the vagaries of imperial negotiations, to assumptions about the age-old nature of sectarian violence in the Orient, and specifically in Mount Lebanon, and to a balance of power that favored Europe over the Ottomans than to any objective reading of the history of Mount Lebanon or the will of the inhabitants who were in any case totally excluded, shut out of the negotiations that led to the inauguration of this first sectarian and anti-democratic uh, system, quota system of 1861. The paradox is of the sectarian system in, in the modern world is that they privilege religious affiliation as a sign of secular commitment to equality. And this is, I think, the crucial part, that this is not, again, a, a, these, the sectarian systems are not religious, of course, systems. Yet their presence and workings out invariably cohere, justify, legitimate, and thus entrench communal solidarities at the expense of broader, overarching Ottoman, or later on, national ones. In the name of resolving ancient quarrels, they make problems, they make acute problems chronic ones. They create elitist, in the case of Mount Lebanon, and this of course endures all the way until today, they create elitist transnational networks of patronage that create enduring dependencies on outside powers. Now if the sectarian game is made the only game in town, one must play it or one will likely lose out. The larger point I want to make, however, is that across the late Ottoman Empire, so from 1861 until the very end of the empire after the First World War, um, there were other games, so to speak, that were being played, and they were being played with a lot more energy. Far more important and consequential than the stopgap sectarian experiment in Mount Lebanon 
was the consolidation of ethno-religious or the emergence and consolidation of ethno-religious and linguistic nationalisms in the Balkans that systematically alienated and expelled Muslims or at least made Muslims unwelcome from new nation states that were created in Greece and Serbia and so on and Bulgaria. The crystallization of a late Ottoman Turkish nationalism in turn turned, as we know, cruelly on the Armenians and the Greek Orthodox Christian population of what is today the Republic of Turkey. Both Balkan nationalisms and young Turkish nationalism were secular in ethos insofar as they were not in any way religious movements. They rejected, however, sectarian mechanisms because they correctly associated them with the diminishment of their sovereignty. Yet both embraced coercion. Both Balkan nationalism and Turkish or Ottoman Turkish nationalism embraced coercion and violence on a vast scale in their efforts to remove what they considered for the first time alien populations. So the Armenians were made into an alien population only in the late 19th century and into the First World War. Um, the irony, of course, was that despite the episodic moments of sectarian violence in Damascus and in Mount Lebanon, Earlier in the 19th century, it's in the Arab provinces, specifically in the Arab Levant, or the Arabic-speaking Levant, um, that uh, this area was actually extraordinarily tranquil until the end of the first, or until the outbreak of the First World War, until the very end of empire. The Arab, or what we would today refer to as Arab provinces, in other words, of the Levant, so Syria, what is today Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, Israel, the Palestinian territories, uh, and of course Iraq as well, remained Ottoman until the very end of empire in the sense of, of, of creating a space for Muslims, Christians, and Jews to elaborate a common civic Arabic culture. Now, of course, this is filled with contradictions and filled with uh, illusions, which I can elaborate a little later. But the point I'm trying to make is that there was no existential crisis in what we today call the Levant, where ISIS today predominates. There was no nationalist question that emerged in this part of the world, unlike the Balkans and unlike Anatolia. Um, the imperialism of the West that the Arabs faced was very different from the imperialism of the Russians and the Austro-Hungarians in the Balkans. And the Arab elites in the Levant, as a result, embraced the reality of Ottoman diversity under a diminished Ottoman sovereignty far more substantially, I would say, than either Balkan nationalists or the Young Turks themselves. And I think this is an extraordinarily important moment, the divergence of the late Ottoman Empire between the south, if we can call it that, and the north of the empire. So this brings me to the second, and uh, I'm, I'll skip over some stuff, but this brings me to the second reason why the 19th century, if, if those weren't reasons enough, there's a second, historiographically, it seems to me, more important reason why the 19th century should focus our attention. And insofar as there was a problem of sectarianism in the Ottoman Empire, I've tried to make it clear, I hope to you by now, that this problem was neither uniform nor was it um, unique. In other words, to make this point, uh, to make this point that, that the Ottoman, what, what happened in terms of anti-Christian violence in the Ottoman Empire, um, it, the, the, to study the sectarian moments of violence in the 19th century, it, you, we have to acknowledge them, first of all, and then we have to put them in a global context. So in other words, the global 19th century saw many states and empires struggle with new ideas of secular equality and citizenship. And there was a huge problem across the world of how do you transform systems of racial and religious discrimination towards systems of ostensible 
equality, irrespective of religious or racial um, um, affiliations. Uh, this was a problem that manifested in the United States, of course. It manifested in Europe, and it manifested in the Ottoman Empire, and of course, in the colonial world as well. The, to put this point in the simplest, and I think even crude terms, although I think I can defend this a little bit more, at the same time as the United States struggled in very different ways with slavery and with the idea of black emancipation, and Europe, in very different ways, struggled with the emancipation of Jews, the Ottoman Empire was confronted with the question of the place of non-Muslims and what had long been an Islamic empire. The US, after all, endured a civil war and many bouts of race rioting involving the very question of black emancipation at precisely the same time as the Damascus massacre unfolded. Uh, and at the time as the Ottoman Empire witnessed unprecedented fragmentation involving sectarian mobilizations and eventually nationalist mobilizations. My point, of course, was not to make uh, or pretend that non-Muslims in the Ottoman case were the same as black slaves in America or European Jews uh, in, uh, in ghettos. That's not my point at all. Rather, my point is to suggest that what race has been to America, religion has been to the modern Middle East. In other words, perceived as stable and obvious categories, but whose political implications, in fact, change radically across the 19th century. In other words, if in America the question of race is defined and undergirded and contradicted and rendered ambivalent the meaning of US citizenship, in the Ottoman Middle East the question of religious difference haunted an incomplete, paradoxical and often contradictory 19th century project of equal Ottoman citizenship. The difference, of course, is not just that the blacks were slaves and were oppressed in an extraordinary way in this country. The difference, of course, between the Arab world and the West is that the Arabs have hardly affected, intervened, and transformed the nature of modern Europe or the United States in the 19th century to the degree that Europeans and later on Americans would transform and, of course, still transform the Arab world. And this brings me to the third reason why the 19th century must be a point of departure for framing our discussions of sectarianism in the modern Middle East. This was the era when Western imperialism began to assert itself as a major catalyst in the emergence of modern Ottoman and later Arab political cultures. There is simply no way to understand the history of anything relating to the Middle East, including what we call sectarianism, without acknowledging, frankly, how Western powers went from being factors, players, agents, in what remained a sovereign Ottoman polity to becoming hegemonic architects of the post-Ottoman Arab world. There is, in other words, a brute reality of Western interventionism and imperialism in the Middle East that cannot simply be denied or mentioned and then moved on uh, uh, or obfuscated behind a rhetoric of self-inflicted wounds that allegedly really matter, as the late Fouad Ajami so tendentiously put it. Lebanon, after all, was created in 1920 by France to allow for Maronite Christian political hegemony. Syria, as you all know, was initially divided into separate Alawite and Druze states, as well as the state of Aleppo and Damascus. The British, of course, cultivated Assyrians in Iraq, and most egregiously, of course, in Palestine, they made that mandate the setting for the exclusionary uh, settler colonial European Jewish nationalism of Zionism. But the point I'd like to, to, to 
end with is that we cannot reduce the question of sectarianism simply to a question of colonial divide and rule, because to do that is to ignore what I've been talking about earlier in the 19th century, the powerful legacies of the 19th century that predated direct European colonial rule over the Arab world, that gave colonial powers material, but not raw material, because the 19th century had already reworked identities in major ways in the form of complex religious and communal and national identities. And that also the Europeans also provided, despite all their imperialism, they still in the 20th century provided a fund by creating the map of the Arab world and these various states, they created a fundamental basis through which Arabic speaking subjects themselves understood the opportunities and the limitations of a new European dominated colonial age. My point is, to be clear, although Europeans created new Arab states on the basis of Sykes-Picot and on the basis of imperial interests in 1920 out of what had once been an Ottoman whole, this imperial partition could not prevent the continuation of an Ottoman era history. This history that we sometimes refer to as a Nahda, of a renaissance, which is a, a, a short, I mean, a term that's too diffuse, but that indicates this, this notion of uh, the idea of an equal secular citizenship that began to take shape in the late Ottoman period. This imperial European partition could not prevent the proliferation of an extraordinary array of anti-colonial Arab voices that expressed new ecumenical and national solidarities that I don't think we can or should take for granted. These solidarities were expressed both in secular and religious registers, and they've almost never been studied together and given the attention that they deserve in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s into the 50s. I do think it is important, in fact, uh, to note that the idea of being a Christian Arab in a political sense came to prominence at exactly the high point of European colonial divide and rule in the Middle East. I do think it's important that the idea of an Arab Jew comes at exactly the point when Zionism begins. I do think that the idea of Islam being a religion of tolerance comes at exactly at the moment when there is an aggressive Western missionary assault on Islam. And when the Coptic canon Sergius preached unity from Al-Azhar in 1919, surely it behooves us as scholars and as people who are invested in the idea of an ecumenical Middle East to wonder not about the alleged false consciousness of someone like Sergius, that this, this is all fake, what he did, or it's all staged, but to ask how meaningful and how much part of the lived experience were the various Egyptian, Syrian, Iraqi, Lebanese, post-Ottoman projects of national unity that all, in a sense, derived from this Ottoman uh, beginnings. It also behooves us, of course, to explore the tensions, the elisions, the contradictions, and the denials that are inherent in all these national projects. How, for instance, was Islam disestablished as a dominant religion and the region, and to what extent and through what forms? What does it mean that secular citizenship in the late Ottoman era was introduced at the point of a European bayonet? Why is it that a discourse of secular male citizenship became hegemonic and relatively uncontroversial. This is one of the most extraordinary stories, how uncontroversial secular citizenship becomes in the Arab provinces of the Middle East, whereas outright secularism and gender equality 
were and remain far more problematic. Why? Although all the mandate states in Egypt explicitly embraced secular citizenship, they also rejected or do not even consider the implementation of a secular personal status code or a uniform civil code. Instead, there remained an enduring paradox that is still evident throughout the Arab world um, and throughout the region. Secular citizenship on the one hand and a highly gendered, newly codified, religiously derived and segregated personal status communities and laws throughout the Arab world and, I believe, South Asia. As far as I'm aware, most women's organizations that fought for female enfranchisement, women's enfranchisement and education fought also for the reformation of personal status regimes, but they did not fight for the abolition of these regimes or their complete secularization. So the question anti-colonial nationalism became in the 1930s and 40s sectarian. If you questioned the nation, you were a sectarian. But if you accepted and partook in religiously segregated personal status regimes, you were not sectarian. And this is interesting sort of tension and contradiction in how this gets worked out. The coincidence, in other words, between the emergence of a codified secular citizenship and codified religiously derived personal status regimes was not, I'm suggesting, a contradiction. It was a relationship. It enabled both Muslims and non-Muslims, men and women, to participate in radically new and tentative and historic national cultures without feeling that they had to abandon or give up their religious affiliations and without imagining themselves, above all, to be sectarian. There is a reason, I think, after all, why it is only in the 20th century that the political Arabic term for sectarianism, ta'ifiyya, was coined. It was coined, it seems to me, as an integral part of a new imagination of an equally new idea, wataniya, uh, belonging to a nation, that accepted Muslims and Christians, and until 1948 at least, Jews, as well as equal citizens under nominally sovereign political frames. So what I'm saying is that much like racism in the contemporary United States, sectarianism is a diagnosis that makes most sense when thought about in relationship to its ideological antithesis. To identify and condemn racism in America, in other words, one presumably upholds an idea of equality and emancipation. To identify and condemn sectarianism in the modern Arab world, one presumably upholds the idea of unity and equality between and among Muslims and non-Muslims. So I'd like to return at the end, in my conclusion, to Adonis and to the sense of despair expressed by him uh, with which I opened my talk this evening. Is there any way to tell the modern history of the, modern, of the Middle East without reverting to a narrative of a place that is doomed to endlessly repeat its allegedly sectarian past. I hope by now you'll see that I, of course, think that there is a narrative, and there is a way. But to write this new narrative requires us that we, requires us that we fundamentally change the way we think of, spatially, the idea of, of sectarianism, the problem of sectarianism. We need, in other words, to abandon, it seems to me, the traditional metaphor of the Middle East as a sectarian volcano always waiting to erupt. This place that, in other words, that has these deep identities that are just waiting for the conditions to come out. As any number of Western and Arab and Middle Eastern Orientalists and historians and pundits 
um, say over and over again. Because it seems to me that this metaphor of the volcano waiting to erupt tells me more about the poverty of the, the poverty of the imagination of the pundits than it does about the imagination of people in the Middle East a century ago. There is nothing, in other words, permanent about identity, and there is still less that is permanent about sectarian identities. They are not waiting to emerge like desert locusts to ravage the Middle East periodically and inevitably. They are rather shaped, crafted, recrafted constantly. They are, in other words, in context, constantly. We need instead, it seems to me, to think far more dynamically of different angles, of specific trajectories, of abrupt interruptions to these trajectories that produce new realities and give uh, and, 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 and new trajectories. Just as Ottoman imperial Muslim supremacy gave way suddenly in the middle of the 19th century to something radically different, the project of equal citizenship and a very complex national coexistence in the Arab Levant, so too has this 20th century project, this idea of an ecumenical coexistence between Muslim and Christian and between Muslims themselves and between Muslim Christians and Jews in the Middle East uh, has faltered badly in our own time. Rather than dwell on the inevitability of failure, we might well focus our collective efforts on charting a crucial and critical history of coexistence. This means, of course, doing away with romanticism and abandoning nostalgia. It also means understanding that a great part of the untold story of sectarianism was the emergence of new political, cultural, and social bargains, imaginations, that sought to enact a more equal, if never altogether equal, relationship between Muslims, Christians, and Jews at the end of the Ottoman Empire and well into the post-Ottoman Arab nationalist era. So the ruins of a synagogue in Sidon, a church on the Aegean island of Junda, or a mosque in what was once a Palestinian village in Israel bear witness, of course, to a still unfolding tragedy. But ruins tell only one part of the story. They need to be read, it seems to me, along the still visible expressions of coexistence that one can still observe readily until today in cities such as Cairo, Alexandria, Beirut, and until recently at least, Baghdad and Aleppo, although I'm sure there as well. I believe in the final analysis that our obsessive contemporary focus on sectarianism has in fact almost totally obscured an extraordinary history, a parallel modern development without which we cannot understand the nature of the sectarian problem that confronts the contemporary Arab world, namely the construction of what I would call this ecumenical frame that began to take shape in the late Ottoman Empire and well in the Arab Levant specifically after 1860 and that endured for at least a century and that has been systematically deconstructed after June 1967. Religion, I suppose, has never necessarily or simplistically dictated political or cultural belief in the Ottoman Empire and in the post-Ottoman Arab world, although religious identifications were never far from the discourses of Syrian, Iraqi, or Egyptian nationalisms. Religion could bolster a xenophobic defense of chauvinism. It could just as easily nationalize culture. Sunni Arabs were hardly of one political voice across the Levant in this century, nor were the so-called minorities. Alawis, for example, incorporated themselves as much as they were incorporated in the language of Syrian 
Arab nationalism. They could also, of course, also identify with Alawi separatism. Copts in Egypt both identified themselves with and against Egyptian nationalism. Shi'i Arabists were both attracted and repelled from the Iraqi Arab nationalism of the Hashemite monarchy. Nevertheless, the idea of a national fraternity was an increasingly widespread expression of a lived history of a choice that a great many Arab Christians, Copts, Jews, Druze, Alawis, Shi'is, Sunni Muslims made against what they perceived for the first time in the mid-19th century and into the 20th century as being an insidious internal disease of sectarianism. They chose, in other words, a unifying nationalism as opposed to sectarian belonging, not because they were unthinking ciphers of Western individualism or secularity. They made this choice because they understood that they belonged to a historic moment. When the late and much lamented Antony Shadid wrote in his memoir, House of Stone, that, quote, there was a part of Islam in every Arab Christian, end quote, he captured, it seems to me, a sentiment that defined the promise of an Arab century. For a Muslim, a Christian, or Jewish Arab to identify politically with one another was, in fact, no less important and no less complex than the idea that a Hindu and a Muslim Indian could identify with each other or a French Catholic and Protestant, or a German Christian and Jew could coexist, to say nothing of the extraordinarily more fraught case of American whites accepting notionally emancipated American blacks as their compatriots. In the Arab Levant subjected to European colonialism, individuals from all walks of life chose what I would call an ecumenical, not secular, nationalism as a way of life when they might have chosen, indeed when many did choose, to live as cloistered minorities or as xenophobic fundamentalists. There is no end, at the end of my talk, uh, to the story of sectarianism in the modern Middle East, though I've tried to suggest that there is a 19th century beginning. So in this time of despair, it seems more urgent than ever to insist upon an honest reckoning with the history of modern diversity in the Middle East without equivocation, without denial. This does not need to be an exercise in self-flagellation as practiced by Adonis, whom I quoted at the outset. Rather, this exercise could be one of a revitalized humanism. That is to say, to identify and engage in dialogue with those different figures, past and present, belonging to different faiths, but not necessarily different traditions. It is to understand how these figures fought to free themselves from what the English radical poet William Blake once, of course, called the mind-forged manacles. And just as important, it is also to be prepared to recognize the meaning and implications of those moments, those histories, in the past, in the present, and of course in the future, that will betray the persistence of such manacles. What is clear above all is that for the story of sectarianism to be told as history rather than as prophecy, we need to historicize sectarianism just as we do coexistence. We need to uncover over and over again and underscore the profound instability contradictions and paradoxes that make up the substance and drama of how history actually unfolds, not as an inevitable path to anything, but as a series of contingent, constrained, and faithful choices, moments, and turning points, freighted with inequality that create new realities. Thank you. Yeah. So why 
was the notion of secular citizenship and grace, but not Well, because it's good because the, the, the choice of well, there are two reasons why. One reason is, of course, the state itself plays a massive role. In this case, the late Ottoman state plays a hugely consequential role, just as states do today through through laws. And so, when there was a ceiling that was placed, and when the Ottoman state, which of course monopolized um, the the um, what some people would call the repressive state apparatus declares, for all sorts of reasons, under huge European pressure, that henceforth Muslim and, Muslim and non-Muslim are equal citizens, irrespective of the religious affiliation. Everybody has to follow suit. Whether you like it or don't like it, you follow and respect and obey the law. So in that sense, that's the easy answer. That's the first answer. But that law was never, neither in the Ottoman case nor in the post-Ottoman case, coupled with the idea that society itself has to be secularized, or with the idea that religion itself doesn't play a crucial role in framing what we refer to in the 20th century as personal status laws, all of which were codified in the 20th century. This process began in the 19th century, but it continued into the 20th century. So the idea was that you can be an equal citizen, and then, of course, you can also be something. You can hold on to the idea that you belong to this or that community. There was never a choice that you had to make. And that's what makes, I think, this part of the world so distinctive. I think that's the, that's the, that's the first and most obvious reason. But of course, there were people who did argue for secular civil status, but they were an, an extraordinarily tiny minority. Um, but the interesting thing is, is if you go through the various what are called secular nationalist parties, almost none of them actually argue for or suggest or implement secular uh, um, civil status. Even today, the most avowedly secular regime in the region, Syria, is not at all secular. No, I know. But the point is, let's not think of that as a contradiction. Think of that as an enabling. So the way we think of it usually is to say, oh, it's a contradiction. So even the most secular doesn't do this. I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is that think of it the opposite way. Think of it, in other words, as a, a compromise or a, a, a bargain that was struck in a particular moment that enabled for the flourishing, because that's what actually happened, of what you would refer to in shorthand as secular political culture, but with the proviso that there are realms in which there is no such thing as a secular citizenship in the most intimate areas of one's social life. So that's the way I'm thinking of it now. It's not to say I'm agreeing with it. I think we should have an optional civil code, if nothing. Um, but just like in India, these things are um, uh, immensely fraught and complex. Yeah, so Mia. Sir, you took so many words out of my mouth. Um, the ecumenical, the sort of role of the state, and how it helps to shape or diffuse or frame pluralism in society. Um, but there was one thing I wanted to kind of uh, you know, ask you about, because it seemed to me that you were saying that there is something in the way of a, a sort of essentialism that connects the medieval to the modern. You seem to imply that you know, uh, we don't understand the modern landscape of religious diversity or pluralism, we call it sectarian, as if uh, that is something that originates in the medieval period. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to suggest, um, you know, now and then tomorrow, <laughs> um, that the medieval period, the pre-modern period, is actually not 
the point of origin of sectarianism necessarily, or it's not that sectarianism was the only thing, the only game in the medieval period. Um, because as many historians have recently pointed out, especially those that have been sort of exploring this cosmopolitanism of the pre-modern uh, world, uh, Islamic world, um, they have been suggesting that there's actually a kind of, you know, tension between, on the one hand, sort of, you know, the production of classifications and knowledge about, you know, divisions within Islam, and on the other hand, um, you know, something that really kind of enabled mm -hmm. uh, pluralism and coexistence. So yeah. I just wanted to represent the medievalists. <laughs> no, but uh, modern okay. historians um, by arguing that Thank you for that. Suggesting that you shouldn't blame the medieval. I'm not blaming. Actually, I was blaming the 19th century. Is the, was the point of my talk? But right. actually, I'm not saying that, that. My whole point was that the medieval has. Let's not think of the. I don't want to think. I'm actually making this the. the, the I'm all for learning, and I will, of course, learn, um, and I do learn from my medievalist colleagues, and early modernists. But my point is that the problem of sectarianism is a problem of nationalism. It's a problem of the modern world. Um, it is a problem of, um, of many different layers, but it is, has almost nothing to do, it seems to me, with the medieval in the way we typically think of it. Um, um, my point is to say that it's, there's no, the point of origin not is not seamless. the... Yeah, there's no seamless at all. Yes. There's no, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about rupture beginning in the 19th century. And nor am I saying that the 19th century is like the 18th, is like the 17th, is like the 16th, or 15th, or 14th, and so on and so forth. But I am saying that you have to think of sectarianism, the idea and the problem, as a parallel to coexistence and to nationalism. Because the, this is all these terms, at Ta'ayush, at Ta'ifiyah, and the Wataniya are all contemporary 20th century terms that belong to each other. Because everyone understands that, that they were living in a historic moment, and you can go this way or you can go this way. And people have to make a choice. And, and my point is that people made a choice overwhelmingly in the 20th century, whether they're the Muslim Brotherhood or the Ba'ath, which are often, again, we put them always in separate sides. This is Islamist and this is secular. My point is, actually, they belong in the same formative moment. They're both anti-colonial, and above all, they both accept, and not just them, every other party just about accepted the idea in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s of the idea that the national body would include, as equal male citizens, all different groups. I think that, except groups that acted specifically as minorities, specifically, and there was that kind of resentment against those groups. And this is, again, one of the caveats and contradictions and tensions of the modern nationalist era. But my point is that we haven't had that history. So if you look at Arab intellectual history, there's a ton on medieval history. There's a ton on post-1967. There's almost nothing on the first half of the 20th century it's a, and the 50s, the 40s and 50s, it's as if it doesn't exist. Hodani's book ends in 39, and it doesn't really deal with the 20th century that much. And then all the other books are post-67, and everything in between is just, oh, just it's Arab nationalism, this dead thing. And um, it's the way it's represented. So. But thanks for that question. I think people are tired. Maybe. Thank you. Are you
No, I'm okay. But I mean, <laughs> if, if, yes, ma'am. So sure. did Turkey take a different uh, trajectory? The formation of a completely different trajectory. The irony of Turkey is that it's secular but without Christians. The irony of the Middle East, of the Arab Levant, is that it's not secular but it has diversity. This is the great sort of you know, shaking out, if you think about what secularism meant in Turkey. It was predicated on, of course, first of all, the, the genocide, the Armenian genocide and the massacres of the 1890s, uh, and then, of course, the population exchange with Greece. Whereas in the Arab Levant, the amazing thing is that it's a completely different history. Then, of course, you have the problem of Israel and Zionism. And that is, of course, again, not in, it doesn't come out of a history of the Ottoman Empire. It comes from Europe. And so it's an amazing, so if you think, put them all together, which we never do as scholars because we're trained to be either, you're a, you, know, you either work on the Arab-Israeli conflict or you work on Turkey or you work on the Ottoman Empire or you work on the Arab world or whatever. But the idea is saying, put them all together and see this extraordinary tapestry that was made in the late 90s in the Ottoman period. And, and the Ottomans have to be given, I mean, not to say I'm not an Ottoman booster at all, but the Ottoman sort of aspect is crucial to understanding what happens afterwards. And as I said, in the Balkans and in Istanbul, and then eventually Anatolia, because of the reach of the, of the late Ottoman state, the great existential nationalist questions eventually crystallize into Balkan means Christian. And although, of course, there is between Serbs and Bulgarians, and there's a huge difference in Greeks. I mean, this is not to say this Christian is one thing. It's also Greek and Bulgarian and Serbian and Montenegrin and so on and so forth. But it's quite clear that Muslims don't belong. And the same thing happens, in, as I said, in reaction among the Armenians, which is, again, why the Armenian question occurs when it occurs. It's why there is no Armenian question in the 18th century or 17th century. It happens in that moment as Ottoman Turkish um, uh, military and, and, uh, and political elites begin to try to think, okay, well, how are we going to cohere the state? And who belongs to the state? And who are the normative citizens? And it's quite clear that Armenians do, don't belong. And the Greeks, Christians, don't belong, including Turkish-speaking Greeks. Who are, the Assyrians are, uh, they're, in World War I, they're a problem, and they eventually become, the Assyrians are Assyrians, do you mean? Assyrians. Yeah, well, no, in, in World War I, there is a problem. There's a huge problem. Um, and then the Assyrians end up in Iraq, of course, where they become a, a different kind of, quote, problem. Um, yes, sir? It's interesting that when you were talking about um, sectarianism being kind of alien in, in uh, European discussion and then the Zionism and the Israel conflict is something that came from Europe, um, mm -hmm. people never talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in sectarian terms. Yeah, but they should. Because it, it's exactly, I mean, I don't wish, we should not actually talk about sectarian terms at all. But if we're going to, it's the idea of, because in all these things, it's the question of how do you structure a national community? And on what grounds? So in, in, as I said, in the Balkans, I mean, so Zionism is a lot more in common with Balkan nationalism. This ethno-religious, nationalist, romantic, 19th century European national idea that comes into a part of the world where, of course, you know, all the problems that European Zionist thinkers began, were obsessed with didn't necessarily, or obviously, or even at all, hold in place in Palestine. So it's not that there was an anti-Semitism in Palestine in the way that there was in 19th century Europe, right? But we do talk about, quote unquote, Arab Jewish sectarianism when we talk about Iraq, Syria, but not Palestine. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Again, so again, but rather than the Arab-Israeli, the typical Arab-Israeli course begins with Herzl, with Zionism, and then you move on to Palestine in, in, with the Balfour Declaration, or you may have a perfunctory chapter on the 19th century. But the idea of what I'm trying to do here is also, again, reverse the narrative and put that whole history of the Arab-Israeli conflict as part of this, um, this, this much richer Ottoman story that precedes Zionism and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Then you see the true, I mean, so when, when, when Zionism plays itself out in Palestine, and of course ends, as you know, with the destruction of Palestine in 48 and the expulsion of Muslim and Christian Palestinians, Arab Jewish life also comes to an end in effect in most parts of the Arab, not immediately, but in effect, and especially in Iraq. And so this double sort of tragedy, or this double pivot, is, is a, a crucial component of, of the book and also this history. So you begin with a Muslim-non-Muslim question in the 19th century, it becomes in the 20th century an Arab Jewish question, and today we're talking Sunni Shiite questions. It's amazing, in three different moments, three different histories, each of which is imagined to be age-old and historic, but in fact is of extraordinarily recent providence. Thank you.